0: frozen north, doing football ministry with them. And after, in 1997, I can remember the year, we took a trip, a mission trip to Spain to work with churches there. And after seven or eight days in Spain, we're going to carry on to Morocco and do mission and ministry with some missionaries there. And as we were in Spain working on the ministry, uh, working with the churches, doing some outreach and evangelism, we'd done several days. And uh, at one point, we had a, a morning off to try and give some culture to these bunch of footballers who don't have much culture. And we went to see the Alhambra, and for those of you who may know something of the history of Spain, it's a really beautiful Arabic Moorish castle built in the 11th century with plenty of add-ons. It's a beautiful view, there's a viewpoint you can go to, and you'll see the, the castle with the mountains in the background, and it's amazingly beautiful. It's a really romantic spot, and in fact there, Natasha and I kissed for the first time. That's probably too much information for a Sunday morning, Um, she's shrinking in her seat. But it's an amazing view. And uh, that didn't really stick in my mind so much as when we came out of the Alhambra, we were walking down a hill and we passed a small church. And there was a sort of group of people gathered around and they were doing something I'd never seen before in my life. And what they were doing was a, a, a sort of invisible bunch of people were carrying a big platform, some kind of float, if you like. And on top of the float was a big throne with a statue of the Virgin Mary, because they take all these kind of processions in Spain. I had no idea about this, but we sort of stopped because we were sort of in tourist mode, you know, what's going on, and we saw these men, well, you couldn't really see them because they're sort of curtains underneath the float, you just see the feet shuffling along, trying to get this big statue, this heavy statue, into this small church, and we were kind of thinking, you know, what on earth is going on? I had no idea, but apparently what they do is they take these statues. Each church has its own statue of the Virgin Mary and they sort of process them around a certain route and then bring them back into the church and that's like a high point is when they come out and when they go in and as they were going in and managed to get it in through the door everyone who was watching burst into applause but also there's some ladies standing there dressed up in their gear and at that moment they began to wail in a really piercing way. I won't try and repeat it for you but it stuck in my mind because at this moment that should be something amazing, it seemed like the way they were expressing it was they had no hope. It was a sort of desolate sound, something that tugged at my heart at least. And I I immediately thought of that verse in Ephesians where Paul tells the Ephesians that you Gentiles were once without God and without hope. And that was the sensation it gave to me. Here's a group of people at the high point of this ceremony and there's a sense of hopelessness, a sense of lostness. It reminded me of what Paul tells the Romans about his own people, the Jewish people. They have a zeal for God, but it's a zeal without knowledge. And 1997 that was. It's perhaps no surprise that God laid Spain on my heart through things like that. And in the year 2000, I found myself in the same town of Granada, beginning the work of ambassadors there with a team of people. God really stirred up my heart. And I I can just say this Spain is a country full of people with zeal for God, but without knowledge. You can still go there, you will see it at Easter, many, many processions, and there's still that same sense of hopelessness and this idea that they don't know God. And that that really stirred me up, and I still get emotional when I share about Spain. It really provoked me, if you like. And I think it sets us up a little bit of, of what we see happening to Paul in Athens in our reading today. So we're going to look at that and see how Paul deals with that. But first, just a quick reminder. Uh, Paul has been very busy. He's in the middle of his second missionary journey. He's made it through Asia without stopping. He's come over to Europe, gone through Macedonia. and, And if you remember, last week we were in Thessalonica and Berea. And as he preached, there was a great response Jews got jealous, and so he had to flee Thessalonica by night, as Morris reminded us, and get over to Berea. And things were going great there. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the Thessalonican Jews were coming along, and stirring things up again. So, at the end of chapter, uh, at chap- in verse 15 of, of chapter 17, we we find Paul being sent down to Athens, accompanied by a couple of people. And then, as we pick up the story, he's waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy to show up and as you read in his letters you can see that they do show up eventually and then they send Timothy back to go check on the Thessalonians again and then Paul eventually leaves on to Corinth and then somehow Silas and Timothy join him there again and that'll be next week's story but at this point in our story Paul is alone in Athens maybe doing a little bit of cultural tourism wondering about this great city So that's where we pick it up. And for those of you who like to know kind of where we're going, um, we're going to look at it in three sections. And we're starting with Paul provoked in Athens. So let's read verse 16 again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, even though Paul was a seasoned traveler by then, he'd been around the Mediterranean, he'd seen many places, he would have never seen any, anywhere quite like Athens. It was a center, yes, of great learning and philosophy, but it was full of idols. It was a center of idol worship to all the Greek gods, the Roman gods, and every other kind of god you could imagine. The ancient writers tell us that one of them says Athens had more images than all Greece put together. Xenophon, a famous historian of the time, says that Athens was one great altar, one great offering to the gods. And my favorite quote that I found is a bit more sarcastic, says that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man. So we get the picture of a place completely full of idols everywhere you went. They were on the corners, temples, all kinds of idolatry going on. That was Athens, and that was the Athens that Paul encountered as he came there and was waiting for Silas and Timothy. And this provoked Paul so much that we read in verse seventeen, he went into the synagogue with both Jews and God fearing Greeks and reasoned with them, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, as Morris and David have reminded us, Paul's normal custom was to go to the synagogue. That was his usual pattern. In Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue, but he still went to the river where he knew the Jewish believers that existed would be. And uh, if you just look in verse 2 of chapter 17, uh, Paul says, it says, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That was his normal pattern. Paul always does that. He knows in the synagogue, he'll have an audience of Jews who already hold dear the scriptures that he has, and uh, God-fearing Greeks that he can argue with about Jesus being the Messiah. So that's where he always starts off. But in Athens, he gets so worked up that he doesn't just wait to get kicked out of the synagogue, which is usually what happens after a few weeks. He goes to the marketplace, day by day, every day, going and grabbing anyone who's going by. You guys are crazy. Look at all these idols. Don't you understand who God is? And... He's so provoked that he can't just follow his normal pattern. And we see this progression. Paul sees the idols. He sees them everywhere. He can't escape them. It stirs him up. It provokes him. And it leads him into action. He begins to speak with every Tom, Dick, and Harry he can find, trying to lead them to Christ. You can feel his indignation. You can feel his energy, his exasperation with this idolatry his need to share and point them to Christ. He was fired up by this great city of idolatry and philosophy. And we read as we go on in verses 18 to 21 he even begins to interact with some of the leading philosophers of the day, the stoics, the epicureans. And we kind of have leftovers of understanding what they are. They were those they didn't quite hold to all the the idolatry they were more into philosophy, and the, the Stoics, we know, were all about self-control and mastery of the emotions. Uh, the, the Epicureans were into saying, well, let's have pleasure. It began as an idea of simple pleasure, but quickly led to excesses. So these are the kind of people Paul is talking with. And we're told that you know the Athenians and those who live there love nothing better than hearing the latest philosophy. Uh, Luke tells us in verse 22. Uh, Sorry, verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They wanted to hear everything new. And so Paul is so enthusiastic, so in their faces, they kind of call him this babbler. He is a, a preacher of foreign divinities because he starts talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Now Luke is very careful. He says that he is evangelizing, is the word he uses, Jesus and the resurrection. And that tells me that when Luke is mentioning Jesus and the resurrection here, that is his shorthand for saying the full gospel message that Paul preached everywhere. The life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and forgiveness of sins through him and no other. This is Luke's shorthand way of saying it. Now of course, if you're living in a city with innumerable gods with all different kinds of names and you hear Jesus and resurrection, you're perhaps tempted just to add them to, well, here's another couple of foreign gods. But we want to hear about it because that's what we Athenians about. We like to hear new things. So they grab him and they say, let's come. You're going to preach to us or proclaim to us what these two foreign gods are all about. Now, I'm just saying this because sometimes uh, There's a a way of looking at this passage that perhaps says Paul got too much into the philosophy, and we sort of say, well, this is not how we should do things. In Corinth, you know, he was much more focused on the cross. And Paul does say to the Corinthians, you know, I focus completely on the cross with you. I don't think he's not focusing on the cross here. It's just that it's not coming out in Acts, which, as you read into Corinth, it doesn't come out there either. We only know that because of the letters. I think Paul is following his normal pattern. He's preaching the gospel about Jesus and the resurrection. And the only way to the resurrection is through the cross. So Paul is invited to preach. And they're taken to the Areopagus, which is this big rock outcropping below uh, the Acropolis. And um, Paul Drinkwater grabbed me before the surface and kindly said, he's been there and this is a piece of the Areopagus. Now, I'm not sure if you get arrested for stealing that, but if you'd like to see it, I'm sure Paul would be delighted to show you further and explain more about the history of Athens. But it was not only this large outcropping. The Areopagus was also the council, the name for the council of the leading citizens of Athens. So not just the inhabitants, but the actual citizens, the ones who ran the things, the elite of the elite, the learned, well-respected citizens of this great center of learning, philosophy, and idolatry. So Paul is invited to preach there, and we're going to look through his sermon in verses 22 to 32, and we're going to see what I believe is a great example of, if you like, contextualization, presenting the gospel in a way that makes sense to the audience without minimizing the message at all. And just before we dive into it, let's keep in mind this. This is, in the book of Acts, Paul's only address to a completely Gentile and pagan audience. If you look in Acts 13, the other main place, we have a preaching by Paul that's in the synagogue. When he shares later on his testimony, there are those he knows who understand the scriptures. But here, Paul is starting from scratch. The Jewish scriptures mean nothing to the people of Athens, to the council of the Areopagus. He has to start from scratch. And, for, and I think it's a great example for us as we engage with a country that is sadly biblically illiterate. And he does a masterful job. And uh, sometimes contextualization can be a word that missionaries use for not really preaching the gospel. The fact is we all contextualize because right now this is our contextual expression of what we believe to be a truthful expression of Christianity. But this is not how the people of the Mediterranean in the first century would have met to, to worship Jesus. It's contextualized to Abbey Dale, 21st century. Almost said 20th century, but we all contextualize. The question is whether we do it well or not, whether we do it faithfully or not, whether we do it holding on to the truths of the Bible. And then uh, before we jump in, just also keep in mind that if you read this through, as Roger did a few minutes ago, the actual speech part, you can read it through in less than two minutes. So whether Luke is giving us what Paul said but not filling in all the details, that's also quite possible. I can't imagine a a great preacher like Paul only taking two minutes of his allotted time, as none of us preachers here at Abbey only use up the minimum. We always tend to grab the maximum. So this may be a summary. But as Paul, I think it gives us a lot to learn from Paul. Let's see how he contextualizes and still stays true to the gospel. So firstly, I'm calling this Paul Builds Points of Contact. He makes points of contact with them, building bridges. As we read verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now he could have begun by saying, Men of Athens, you guys are completely deluded. Look at all the idols around. But he doesn't. He acknowledges. There's some religion here. There's some seeking after God. He says, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, in other words, he actually went out of his... Way to have a look at these gods and these idols and these altars to see what they're about. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul uses this altar to the unknown God as a bridge to proclaiming the true God. It's a great jumping off point. What you don't know, I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul is building bridges. He's making points of contact. You're religious. I can see that. You've got this altar to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about it. And as he goes on in, this, in, the, in, the, in, this, in his speech, you will see towards the end, he actually quotes two of their own poets that would have been very known to them. They were from the 6th, 7th century and the 3rd century. So there's part of the fabric of these learned Athenians was to hear their own poets being used Not to introduce some kind of Greek philosophy, but because they simply matched up with a piece of biblical truth, as we'll see in a minute. So Paul shows respect, and he makes these points of contact, building bridges towards these Athenians, these clever, learned, sophisticated, philosophizing, idolatrous group. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, guess what? It's fantastic you guys are so religious. I've got another God, Jesus, if you'd like to hear about him. He's pretty cool too. But you make your own minds up. Just, you know, let's all just stay nice friends. No, he begins to critique their point of view. And so he doesn't leave it at building a bridge. He exposes their fallacies. And he lays a biblical foundation to this group of people who have never ever seen the scriptures probably. And although he's giving a culturally appropriate presentation he also begins to critique their misguided religiosity, presenting a biblical worldview. What does he say about the one true God? Many of the things that Chris has already read out to us. God is the creator. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He gives life. He sustains life. God made everyone from one man from the man Adam. And then he set the times and places for everyone to dwell. He's sovereign in that way. God, As we read through, we see all these things in verses 22, 23, sorry, 24 down. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples but built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Paul is presenting a biblical worldview. He's not saying, as sometimes we want to, well, in Genesis 1.1 it says this. He's just simply telling them biblical truth. And he's completely demolishing and deconstructing their false view. The gods of the Greeks... Somehow they emerged out of the earth. They were born in in chaos and it's quite interesting but completely ludicrous. They rule different parts. You have the God of the underworld, the God of the skies, the God of the earth, the God of every river and all this kind of stuff. They need sacrifices to be appeased or persuaded, hence all the temples, so that the Athenians could go and hopefully gain some kind of favor. They're not gods that bring and give life. They cause death and destruction. They meddle with human affairs in a way that is just petty and horrible as you read the many Greek myths. And here's something I didn't know. The, the gods can't override fate. So, for example, in the, the you know, the, the Odyssey, the, the fate of whoever the guy was, was to get home Odyssey. <laughs> his fate was to get back. So they couldn't stop him, but they could just make his journey very unpleasant. That's the Greek gods. They're not sovereign. Paul is saying, here is the sovereign God. He sets the times and places, not like your weak and weedy gods. And you'll see time and time again in the story, they act like the worst of humans. So Paul, as he goes through this speech, is setting a biblical worldview, a biblical foundation. And he's critiquing and destructing, dis- destroying this kind of Greek philosophy and idolatry. And he sums this up, by saying essentially in verse 27 that you are blindly seeking in the dark. God did this so that man would seek him perhaps and perhaps reach out for him. And the word Paul uses is a word that's used for blind people or, or people groping in the dark. They can't find what they're looking for. He says that's you Athenians. You're blind. Look at all these idols. You don't have any idea about the true God. And so he goes on to say you know, after quoting their own poets, you know, your own poets have some truth. But if we're God's offspring, as your poets have said, how can you possibly think, verse 29, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill? So he doesn't just, as I said, build this nice bridge. He begins to present this biblical worldview. And then as we read the last part of his speech, he makes a challenge. He doesn't leave it there. Paul challenges the Athenians about the need to repent. Verse 30, In the past God overlooked such ignorance. That's not very nice, you ignorant Athenians who think they're so sophisticated. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. There is, Athenians, a coming judgment, and all these idols will not serve you anything on that day. You need to stop, repent, turn away from the blindness, the folly of offering these foolish gods. A change is required when? Now. Now he commands. You have to respond. This is not a message where Paul is saying, Go home and think about it, folks. Just weigh it up and you know make a choice. No, God is re- re- commanding you now to respond. And he says, what's the proof of my message? Well, it's the resurrection. If we don't get to the resurrection, we've stopped short in the gospel. Paul spends all of 1 Corinthians 15 explaining the importance of the resurrection. Everything stands or falls on the resurrection. And as I said, there's no way to the resurrection without the cross. In today's society, people are very happy to admit that there was a Jewish teacher named Jesus who lived when he lived, who was a great teacher, had some great ideas, who was put to death by the Romans on the cross. They're very happy to accept those as historical facts, except for people like Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, as Morris reminded us last week. But if you start preaching resurrection, that's when people say, now you're talking nonsense. Because no such thing happens. And the Greeks were no different. There was no resurrection in their philosophy, in their religion. People didn't come back from the afterlife. People didn't rise again in bodily form. And the reaction that, is prov- that, that we see is obvious. Some sneer at him and scoff at him, we read in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. That's what the gospel provokes. When you preach the gospel, you provoke a reaction, which is why I believe Paul certainly preached the gospel at this occasion. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 reminds us that the gospel, and we as the messengers of the gospel, are the fragrance of Christ. And to some people, that's the stench of death, because they don't accept it. To others, it's the fragrance of life, because they do believe. And so he's scoffed at him. We don't know what Paul would have gone on to say if if this sort of maybe what Luke is saying at this point, there was so much scoffing that he essentially had to break it off. Would he have gone on to say, who was that man that was appointed? It was the man Jesus. But we know he's been preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We read that back at the beginning. Paul was going around the markets preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So it wasn't that he hadn't already explained who Jesus was. And we see this, that some attach themselves to Paul. And what I'm going to say is that Paul planted the first church in Achaia, which is the region that encompasses both Athens and Corinth. Not that one, obviously. But he plants a church, as we read at the end. When Paul left the council, verse 33, verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. And what it literally says is they attached themselves to Paul. They clung on to him among whom also were Dionysius Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, Paul never writes a letter to the Athenians, so we're not quite sure. We have very few records of what might have happened to the church in Athens. But we do know from church history that a church was there. According to some of the early church historians, this fellow Dionysius the Areopagite, who was obviously one of this leading council, becomes either the first or second bishop of the church in Athens. So it obviously grew and became fairly substantial. And if you read 2 Corinthians, it's addressed to Corinth and all the believers in that province of Achaia. So they may well have got their own copy of 2 Corinthians. So there was a church there. He plants a church. So I don't see Paul's visit to Athens as a failure at all. But it was a tough place to go. It was the center of philosophy, the center of idolatry. And it's not surprising that the response was probably not as, say, we've seen in Thessalonica or Berea or elsewhere in the Book of Acts. That's true of the world today. Southern Europe is one of those places. It's the center of idolatry, a center of hardness against the gospel. People don't respond. Middle East, North Africa, we could say there are places like this today. But Paul planted a church there, and he didn't let the difficulty of it prevent him from speaking the truth. It's fired him up so much that he was running around like a madman in the market preaching the gospel. So he plants a church. And as we've been hearing in our church meetings and to the ministry team leaders, we've been trying to kind of engage a bit in this idea of how we as a church bring people from a relationship to a respect of the Christian faith to understanding the relevance of the Christian message and making a response And I I think this is a little picture of what Paul did in Athens. He took those few believers on a journey of relationship to response so that there was a church left in Athens. Paul planted a church in the center of one of the hardest places we could probably think of to share the gospel. So how can we learn from that process? We're not in Athens. We're in Abbeydale, Abbeymead. What can we learn from it? Well, I think really by asking ourselves a few questions. Paul has proclaimed the unknown God. He has been provoked in Athens. He's preached in the Areopagus and he's planted a church in Achaia. He's given us a great example, if you like, of speaking in the public sphere to an unbelieving and skeptical audience, which sounds like our neighbors and our workmates And our colleagues today, they are very skeptical of the scriptures. Ah, the Bible, outdated. Ah, God, we don't need that. So, what can we learn in this process? How can we learn from this passage today? I think the first question to ask is what stirs our hearts? Do we really see the idols that are around us in Abbey Mead and Abbey Dale? In Spain, there were physical idols see them as they process the Virgin Mary around. Here we don't have that same physical nature of the idols, but you still see it in the fancy cars and the always the better house and the better school and the better job. Those are our idols in Abbey Mead, Abbeydale. And that's what captures the minds of our family, our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues. You could say more. You know the idols that they're dealing with. And the idols that perhaps seem so normal to us because we're part of this culture. The Athenians didn't blink at the myriad temples and idols. And perhaps neither do we, the idols in Gloucester. We're so used to them. And perhaps they're in our own hearts too. So do we really see them? What will provoke us enough to be willing to challenge those idols? And to lead people to the truth? As a, as a missionary kid, I, I grew up listening to only Christian music, which limited your options. And one of those options with Keith was Keith Green. Nobody really liked him for his singing, but his lyrics were very powerful. And he wrote a song called Asleep in the Light. It goes like this. Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? No one aches, no one hurts, no one even sheds one tear, but he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. I think those are powerful to me because I don't put them into practice. I'm just like that song. I get so complacent in my job, the house, the family, that I don't see the needs. I close my eyes to the hurts. What will provoke us? You know, when I saw that idol in Spain, it provoked me. And I ended up giving 11 lives, eleven years of banging my head against a wall to preach the gospel. Because that's what God wanted. But, but it's the same here. We we see we don't see the needs. And I, I think of myself, I'm challenging myself right now. What will wake me up? What will provoke me? Sorry. And what will provoke us to act? And you may say, well, there's not a lot I can do at this stage of my life. Well, we can all pray. We can all pray for the neighbors. Pray for our work colleagues. Pray for Abbey Church, that we would be that light in Abbey Mead. Let's not be lulled into the complacency that we've got too much going on, we're too busy. Now, I know we can't react to everything. There's hundreds of needs out there. There's some huge needs, as we'll hear about in the um, Life Matters next week. I'm not sure when it is. The, the trafficking. That's a, that's a huge thing, and it happens here in the UK. But what is God stirring in your heart? There must be something that he's stirring in you and in me that we, that you, I can respond to. It's not all going to be the same thing. It may be a need in the church. It may be a simple need in your community. But what is going to stir you up to act? What is going to stir me up to act? That's the first prayer and question we need to be asking ourselves. Because Paul didn't let what he faced prevent him from sharing the gospel. So what provokes us into action? And then secondly, as a church, as a community, what are we doing to proclaim the gospel in Abbey? How are we building bridges to our culture? It may be things like Abbey Tots. That's fantastic news we heard this morning. It may be things like the football on a Friday night or with kids. It may be the other activities you're involved in that I don't know about. But how are you building bridges to your culture around you, to the people around you? You know, Paul was an apologist as well as a herald of the good news. He knew how to give a reason for the hope that was in him. He knew how to make it relevant to his listeners, as he did in Athens, to that group of skeptical, biblically illiterate philosophers. And what misunderstandings do we need to correct? As I said, evolution is taken for granted nowadays as the one sole cause of what happens in the world today? We don't have to get, look further than the Da Vinci Code to realize people have no idea of what the Bible says. You can go anywhere and people have probably never read it. We, can, we see continual relativizing of morals. Think of the things Stephen Fry said last year about facing, if he ever had to facing God, just telling him off for being a mean, capricious God. Somebody lost in his own foolishness. There are things we need to correct with a biblical world view. We're starting from scratch. Let's not bother calling the UK a Christian nation and lamenting golden era gone by. Let's start presenting a biblical foundation to our neighbors, friends, and family. So what corrections, misunderstandings do we need to correct? And what challenges do we need to give? You know, it's, it's not enough to run a nice program, if we never present the challenge of the gospel. It's not enough to build relationships if we never get to the point of response. If we don't make it to Jesus and the resurrection, we haven't made it far enough. And that's where we get embarrassed. I'll build a relationship, get alongside someone. You know, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church. But it's got to go further than that. We've got to get to Jesus and the resurrection. And of course, that means his death on the cross as well. And then the last question, which kind of sums it up, how are we planting the church in Abbey? And yes, Abbey's already planted, but how are we building that plant up? How are we watering it and growing it? Who? Who are we moving on that pathway? relationship to respect, to relevance and response. If no one pray, who will you begin to move on that pathway? And so my final question really is this, will you make the unknown God known? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the the challenge of your word, which pierces our own hearts. As Paul was provoked by the idolatry, Lord, we're provoked by how unfaithful we are to you. And I pray that as a church you would stir us up, and that you would enable us to be your faithful witnesses in Gloucester, in Abbeydale, Abbeymead. And to our neighbors, family, and friends, stir us up, Lord, challenge us, and enable us to share your word faithfully. We thank you that you are with us, that you've given us your Holy Spirit to enable us in that task. And we pray that you would use us to make you the unknown God in this place, known to our neighbors, family, and friends. In Jesus' name.